1: All right, everyone. Welcome back to another Bell Curve Roundup. Uh, you've got uh, Michaels one and two, Yano and Vance. Sorry, uh, travel schedule made me miss last week. Heard oh, yeah. it was a good one. Welcome back, we miss you buddy. We miss you. Now, the big question is: Are we back? As an industry, <laughs> are we, are we back? We're back? We're back.
0: We're back. We're, we're back. fully back. People are people are yoloing into coins like it's. November 2021 again. Norm, are normies are texting
2: me like 2022 never happened. People are ready to go.
0: <laughs> People are like, what low cap
2: gems should I buy? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, when you start hearing those three words, low cap gems, it's on.
0: I will say, though, I'm, I missed the boom yeah. in Telegram ch- groups. Telegram groups are popping off right now.
2: Yeah, the, the few survivors are, are having a
3: great time. Everyone yes. else is still dead not to uh not to completely rain on the parade but I'm I'm still holding out that there's going to be something I don't know somewhere in like a couple weeks and and we're just back to back to a little doldrums but I you know this is good it feels nice feels like we could get back in just like a couple of good positive news days
2: the uh the thing that that I'm kind of looking for as in terms of you know maybe we're we're not back or like a scary narrative that could push people you know brush people back a little bit is the uh, January inflation print looks hot? Looks like it almost you know doubled in terms of you know the acceleration from last time. So I, I could see there being a little bit of uh you know stop and start, people getting concerned, you know, something like that. And
3: specifically, what we're talking about is I think it's Cleveland Fed that puts out uh, inflation now, which is a day by day tracking of inflation, and it's an approximation. It's been hot. Relative relative to what the actual CPI and PCE prints have been over the last, I think three or four months, so it 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 hasn't been a perfect barometer of where the actual print will come in, but it is a pretty good indication, at least trend wise, where things are going, um,
1: because it maintains a a day to day measure. Well, we had um, earlier this we had yesterday actually the FOMC, um, and Powell kind of that's where Powell kind of gets up and you know uh, announces what they're going to do in terms of uh, you know rate hikes or cuts or whatever so they did the 25 basis points that most people were expecting but i think in terms of the verbiage that he used it came off a lot more dovish than people were expecting j Powell not only announces the 25 bips which everybody and their mother
3: expected to happen um, but what was really the bulk of the announcement bulk of the news was his press conference about a half an hour after the announcement and that's where you really got to see sort of the, the conversation point, but also the perspective behind the 25 basis point increase. Um, <clears throat> I think the two kind of major components of this are at least markets following the conversation are now pricing in 50 bips increase for the rest of the year. Um, so that, that may mean we have another two 25s or a 25 pause and then maybe a 25 later on. Um, Or we have more hikes and then rate decreases at the end of the year. Um, but markets are expecting 50 bips. Um, the Tom Lee headline though was the word disinflation was used 13 times throughout his conversation. And so at least that, you know, that word itself is starting to enter into the narrative of, of what the Fed is putting out. Um, and yeah, dovish is a great way to describe it. Markets reacted immediately. Um, and, uh, we'll see. I mean, You know, to Vance's point earlier, inflation for January could be, um, some cold water that gets thrown on this trend.
2: We, we got to put some respect on, on Tom Lee's name. He was like the only bullish person last year. I would read his like letters just to like keep the, keep the vibes up, even if I didn't necessarily agree with what he was saying. But, you know, he's been right. And like, I just remember all these interviews. And if people don't know who Tom Lee is, he's kind of like this, this permable macro strategist that, it's very data-driven and very contrarian, but also just very smart. Uh, but whenever things get bearish, they like to have Tom Lee on CNBC, and they just beat him up every single time. And it's like, so, Tom Lee, you're back, and you're still wrong. How does it feel? And, like, these interviews are just terrible. But, like, those are usually a sign that, you know, Tom Lee is is, is going to be vindicated at some point, which he has this to He's like the inverse
0: Jim Cramer take.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> I think I think Jim Cramer's bullish now too, which is uh,
3: maybe a, a, a negative signal. Um, but the uh, yeah, Tom Lee isn't wrong; he's just off by about six to twelve months, it
1: seems. Yep, he's, he's just early. I'm a huge fan of Tom Lee. He's been he's been pretty right, I think, uh, by and large. And it's hard to get out there and be bullish when everyone's screaming in your face. And it's very consensus to be bearish. So I'm a Tom Lee supporter. I'm a stan of
2: Tom Lee. For sure. I like his style. Shout out Tom Lee. Me too. Um, yeah. What else is happening with with the with the Fed stuff? I mean, my take was that his heart just wasn't in it. You could tell. It's like we're at twenty five basis points. It's basically zero. Like maybe there's one more. You know, a lot of the stuff was crossed out. The Ukraine stuff, the uh, the supply chain stuff in the in the letter. Um, I don't know. It feels good. Like we're on the other side of what I think is the rate peak. And now you have Powell kind of acknowledging a lot of what people have been screaming at him to acknowledge, which is just the disinflation. It feels like that was like a watershed moment for people who've just been getting beat up by these rate hikes. Like thinking back to last year, the fact that he hiked 75 basis points four times, that's like taking a sledgehammer to just the economy do you remember, I can't remember if it was June or if it was July, but
3: one of the first 75 basis point increases, he literally walks out there and he, he's like holding the piece of paper and he's like shaking. You know, think, think about that, j Powell versus this one. This one, you know, a, little, a lot more cool, calm and collected, but also just like the narrative is something that I think is more conducive to people
1: liking him and not actually hating him. People had this really specific target in mind of about 3%. Remember, that's what people thought the Fed could get to because when he did his original pivot, you know, when at one point, you know, when he was, you know, sort of early in his uh, Fed days, you know, he was like, we're going to be more hawkish and raise rates. And, you know, they tried to get above 3%, like the whole market just puked and he famously pivoted. So when he started doing these rate hikes, everyone thought he'll get to like two and a half or 3% or something. And, you know, to his credit, he's, he, I think he kind of made the right decision. I think he's going to get a
2: lot of credit in retrospect for four 75 basis point hikes in a row. Like yeah. Gundlach and Druckenmiller and all the people who are kind of beating up on him over the past couple of years have, have done a 180 and said, you know, he's actually one of the better Fed chairs of, of our lifetime. And I don't know, looking back, if he didn't hike like that, we still may have a, a large inflation problem. And we're not out of the woods yet, but it was mostly, you know, necessary medicine. I mean, Drucker Miller is saying that whenever CPI has
3: surpassed five percent in the history of the Fed, you have to raise Fed funds, Fed funds rate higher than CPI to break CPI. So Drucker Miller is still calling for like another one and a half percent this year, another 150 basis points this year, which I, I think would be probably bad policy, and unless we see inflation really tick up over the next couple of months, uh, re-tick up. But, you know, there, there is a lot of, you know, countering perspectives
1: at this point from very esteemed people like Unlock and Miller. They're really zoomed in on this one metric, by the way, which is they sort of invented three months ago, which is core X shelter. So they, they're, what they're basically trying to do is like they're trying to see through some of the noisier, more volatile uh, components of CPI, which is core, which excludes food and energy. And then they know that there's this big lagging component, which is shelter. So they're really what they're really trying to see through to is wages. That's why labor markets and the unemployment rate has been in focus, and that has started to turn. So the last the last uh, CPI that came in really soft, and I think that that played a part in in his like kind of dovish stance today. And or the yesterday. other big
3: piece of data that came in, I think it was Monday or Tuesday. I think it was Tuesday. Was ECI, which is the employment cost yeah. index which is kind of a, a basket of a number of different things, but it, it's sort of a proxy for wages. And that was expected, I think last month was 1.2%. It was expected to be 1.1% this this month, but it's actually 1.0%. And so that, you know,
1: beat, I think also helps with a little bit more of the dovish perspective. Do you guys like just last, you know, I mean, we were talking about like kind of joking, we're back, but like, I mean, what do you think when you see when people are like pinging you about low cap gems and, you know, can't Kanto or Kanto is like ripping, you know, like, uh, it, 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 and honestly, even in stocks, like Carvana is up like a hundred percent in, in a week. I mean, what, what do you, what do you, is that like not something to worry about? And that's always going to kind of happen off the lows. Cause those things got beat up and they were shorted. Um, or do you view that as like being, uh, you know, being
2: indicative of a slightly less organic rally? It's just like part of the cycle in my opinion and you saw like a few of these during 2019 where bitcoin rallied to i think it was like 14 or 15k you know and its old all-time high back then was like i think 18 or 19k you can kind of get these pretty vicious rallies and as long as it's not in like the absolute trash of the long tail like i haven't seen doge or shib really really go off yet that's the stuff that kind of concerns me. Um, and i think you've also had a more a bigger rally in the higher quality names which uh, like that's one of the things that we're looking for in terms of is this industry mature enough to you know allocate a lot 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 more money to you need the market to kind of be more rational than it has been in the past so i don't know canto is is like a legitimate project in in our minds um and like synapse is doing well and lido's doing well and and a D-Y-D-X. lot of the projects that dydx is doing D-Y-X, well yep. um you know, like Polygon's doing well. Dogecoin isn't really moving, you know. Uh, it's up a little bit today, but but not a lot. It feels pretty healthy. I agree.
3: I think it's it goes in waves, right? You see the, the, you know, once you get to the speculative wave, that's when it starts to be too speculative. But I think we're still on that first wave right now. And the way I think about it is sort of like two is a trend and three is a pattern. Like we're starting to put like data points together where we can map one to two. But it takes one to two to three to be able
2: to say, okay, like this is a changing narrative. Like this is a changing of the guard. A lot of it's PVP too, like especially the uh, the Cosmos stuff where it's just so, such low liquidity that like you see people tweet about it and then it'll move. And, you know, people are just kind of jockeying for exit liquidity or, or entry liquidity.
3: Well, and that's the thing, like the liquidity right now is so low that it doesn't take much up or down from a buying or selling perspective to move these markets pretty drastically. And and so I think that you know is probably the biggest narrative. If someone comes in and wants to buy ten thousand dollars worth of you know something that's not traded on a centralized exchange, and they're they're buying it through Uniswap or or Sushi or somewhere, One Inch, that's going to move the
0: market a lot. All it takes is uh, Hal coming on the Empire podcast to uh, move DYDX thirty thirty percent higher. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus,
2: not financial
1: advice. Pretty bullish review. Can, get can uh, we get a check in? Guys, of um, what's going on in kind of like the the private side of crypto. I know uh, Michael. We we uh, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but uh, actually Jason and I, this is on both of our minds because we had a bit of a doomsdayish call this morning with uh, someone who's like sees basically a lot of uh, kind of earlier to mid stage uh, crypto companies, and he said there's still a decent amount of pain to get worked through, uh, both just in terms of valuation resets, but also just um, you know there are some crypto companies that are kind of burning a lot of cash and like they're going to have trouble basically raising capital. Um, would love to get a sense from from the two of you, both just in terms of like how you're seeing in terms of like new deal flow coming into the space and, and valuations, but also maybe, uh, you know, without talking any specifics about your portfolio companies, just like how are folks doing that raised, you know, in 2021, maybe on higher valuations and like how have they adjusted to
2: sort of the, the new normal. Takes a while to reset these valuations and private markets are kind of the last to reset, uh, but... You're now at a point where prices have corrected and, and pretty much doubled, and a lot of the venture stuff is a lot more attractive as a result, but, but they still need to reset the valuations that they're going to market at. Um, I would say most of our companies have two years of runway, um, and so they're going to be needing to raise in you know, 2025, like mid 2025, you know, like that would be my guess at least. Um, but we know of a lot of portfolio companies of other folks and, and just generally in the space that have six to eight months and things like aqua hires and selling companies for parts, uh, have definitely been conversations that we've had with a lot of folks. Frankly, like there isn't enough product traction with most of them to really do any interesting, like M&A or, or you know, aqua hire style deals. Um, so th- that's one part of it. I would say the other is, Like the end of this year, you're going to see a lot of people kind of hit the wall in terms of their runway and they're going to need to raise. And, you know, if the market is where it is today, the market clearing price for a ton of startups coming to market is going to be a lot lower um, than it has been in the past couple of years. And entrepreneurs still kind of don't realize that. So we need them to kind of like, you know, have the come to Jesus moment so they can actually get a fundraise done. So, you know, start of
3: the year. New, fresh new, okay, what did we learn last year? But like, what's the plan for this year? Conversations kind of going around the horn with with all the major uh, portfolio companies that we have. The advice that we've been giving is assume that the end of 2023 looks exactly like we are, like the place that we are in right now, Um, which is essentially, you know, we might get 40% pump, you know, 50% drop and like things are going to move around. But just assume that you're going to end the year with a lot of the same, basic metrics that we have right now, which is, you know, TVL, user growth, activity, <clears throat> you know, on-chain, um, you know, potential customers. And so if you're going to start in, and to Vance's point, if if we have, you know, two years of runway, it means that you have to start thinking about what your fundraise looks like in 18 months from now, if not a little bit sooner than that. Which means that from then, uh, if you work backwards, what product, what service, what user, you um, are you going after 18 months from now because that that you you don't have right now because right now it's not working right now the product market isn't isn't there like things that worked in 2021 2022 aren't going to work in 23 and 24 so how do you change how do you adjust how do you you know reinvent to get to where you need to be so that you can survive and and that's a lot of the conversation piece right now that we're having um but I think it also stems from and, and one of the interesting perspectives um, that I think about is like, what is the fundraising landscape for other venture funds? And what is the basically, therefore, what is the liquidity that's going to be available for these fundraises that need to happen in the second half of this year, first half of next year or second half of next year? And it's not going to be good for any fund who has to raise a fund in 2023. And in fact, it may even be like impossible to something that's
2: painful. Um,
0: there and there if, were
2: times in 2019 where venture funds straight up could not raise. Right.
3: Yeah. There, there are a lot of notable venture firms that could not raise their funds in 2019 and ended up pulling it off eventually over the course of 18 months in 2020. I think that's going to be a lot of what you see here. I think you're also going to see venture funds who <clears throat> maybe raised 500 for their last fund have to go through the process of raising 225 for their next fund. Um, you've, you've now seen tiger who is set off to raise 13 originally, and then they announced that they're going to downsize to six and now it's down to five. Like that is representative of what you're going to see from a venture fundraising landscape. Now, the other part is, you know, and, uh, you know, we are inclusive in, of this set, but there, there are a number of venture funds who raised basically at the end of the cycle last year, who still have a ton of dry powder. But the problem is. The bar for accessing that dry powder is three, four, five times higher than it was 12 months ago. And you know, we, we are being extremely cautious in terms of how we make new bets. We want to take concerted, large bets. But the bar to get there is just that much higher. Um, and the valuations that are going to clear the market are going to be that much lower.
0: Hmm.
2: You know who else had to reduce their fundraising target and, and their strategy set? Chamath. So Chamath is now opening social capital back up to external LPs. And he was going to raise, I think, like three or four and do like growth stage and like hedge fund stuff. Now he's raising one for early stage stuff. And he's having a first close in March, which kind of implies like if you don't, clo- like, if you don't close everything at one point, it means that like the demand is softer than you might have been expecting. It's just a tougher environment, I guess, for, for everyone. But yeah, especially for crypto,
1: it's
0: the dynamics, though, for a fund, if you miss the raise are not as bad as when a when a founder or when a company can't can't make their raise, because like, a, co- unless I unless I don't understand. The, yes, the fund and, yes and no. I mean, it, so so yes,
3: uh, if you are a venture investor right now, who has a fund, who is out of dry powder, like no more capital to be able to spend, how do you stay relevant? While people are also doing deals, you're just uncompetitive. And if you miss a cycle, so let's say you miss a year of being able to make new investments, the best investments could be in that year. You don't have coverage over – I mean the whole point of a venture fund is that you have vintages every you know, funding cycle, which could – historically, it's been two to three years. Over the last five years, that's shortened probably to like 12 to 18 months, which is kind of crazy. Deployments have just been really, really quick. But now you're probably going to see like three to four years for deployments. And if you're stuck in one of those mid cycles where you deployed your fund in eighteen to twenty four months, but in fact you can't raise for thirty six months, you're out of the game for a whole year, and and you lose brand appeal, you lose relevancy, and and you know it, it's not a death nail blow, but it is something that just kind of removes the the cachet that you once had if if you're not able to make new investments.
1: So that answer is kind of like I'm gonna ask, but I'm sure it's like a really stupid question, but Going through these cycles, it kind of just makes you think, like, why aren't there more funds that just stop investing or don't invest at the peak and then they wait and hold all their dry powder to now, right? Which <laughs> Why don't they like, buy it why at don't the
0: bottom? They? I, I know that's like – no, that's why I'm
1: like sure it's a stupid question but,
3: you know, I – I mean, the, it, it's it's uh, it's obviously not that easy uh, as, as saying it that way but – I think this is where, you know, the best fund managers are prescient in terms of fundraising cycles, when getting things done, but also pacing and being really prudent about when you're deploying that capital and how much you're deploying at any given point in time. I'd also say like in crypto, we have a, a really unique opportunity to change the traditional venture strategy where like, hey, a venture fund can hold liquid assets. And maybe those liquid assets could be used as you know things that you could recycle into further venture investments, and so you do get to have a little flexibility on your strategy, a little creativity. But I think that you know is tough when your venture fund is all SAFs and equity investments,
0: and you have no dry powder. It's a very different different place to be. In. There's a, there's actually one more dynamic inside a venture firm that I don't fully understand how it works. That I want to understand it. So when you guys raised what 400 million for your last for the last fund. Um, when you, so my understanding is you don't go get it. It's not like someone like, it's like, all right, like March 1st, we close the fund. And then like the next day, March 2nd, like 400 million shows up in your bank account. You have to call that capital. How does that process actually work? Like, are you at some point this month going to call your LPs and be like, Hey, Joe, like I, you know, I've got a, a good deal that we're looking at. Like, can you send us the money? Like, how, how does this work?
2: So you, so before I answer that question, there's like two jobs if you run a venture firm. Number one is you have to be like a really good investor. Number two is you have to be a good fund manager. Very different jobs. Being a good fund manager, when do you raise? Who do you raise from? Like how do you like get basically communicate to LPs, get your brand out there, like run the fund in the operational sense? Fun- investing is like how do you put the money to work? When you raise money for a venture firm, we raised 400 We did one close. So we closed it all. Um, And we've been calling it over time. Usually like you'll call a chunk up front and then you'll call like 10% every few months after that. Um, But to Michael's point, if you want to hold liquid assets and you want to do something aggressive, you know, near the bottom, like you have to call a lot more of that and you have to run kind of like this quasi VC hedge fund style strategy. And that's something that VC LPs are, are generally not used to. And so, like, that's the other part of being a fund manager. It's like, how do you communicate your strategy to folks?
0: Getting them comfortable with that. And and that's what you guys are doing right now. I know you, you guys are taking big shots because you think that we're at somewhere near the bottom. So you're having to make those calls right now.
2: We, we did make those calls. Um, and, uh, like, we're, we're not kind of being as aggressive right now. But when we thought there was really good cheap opportunities, we we, we did but you know it's it's uh it's an educational journey for everyone it's uh it's not exactly as straightforward as you know we're going to invest in 15 equity based companies and we're going to you know make 7 of them work and 3 of them will fail like we're, there's a reason why we're talking about interest rates and what the fed is doing and and all that stuff like this is not necessarily what Michael and I signed up for but this is kind of what you have to do you can't sacrifice the fund for the sake of the mandate
3: you, you still have to have a venture thesis and basically, what that means is you have to be able to underwrite, even if it is a liquid investment, a venture outcome potential for that for that investment. Like you can't be like, oh, I think this is gonna pop twenty percent, or like, oh, I, I'm just gonna go yield farm with a bunch of cash. Um, it's not really anything that you can put into a venture fund. That's there are other types of funds that you know have those different types of strategies. So your LP base is expecting you to make venture investments, and that's what we do. But the the way that you do that from the start and the way that your portfolio is constructed at the end in crypto historically every single one of those profiles has been different you know what you started out saying hey we're going to put you know this capital into 60 to 70 companies over the course of 18 months to 24 months it's like nope okay everything just blew up so there's really attractive liquid buys that you know we think are going to be high potential opportunities for us like we're changing the strategy 3 months into the fund and, and that's okay. But you have to have an LP base that's supportive of that.
0: Why does it work that way? Like when a company raises money, if we raise 400 million bucks, that money just gets sent. It's not like we just, you know, it's like, hey, we want to do a big ad spend. The, the, the reason why
3: historically is, um, well, it, it's twofold. One, LPs have multiple areas that they're putting capital in. It could be, you know, a, a or an equity hedge fund. It could be, um, you know, a, a Distressed debt fund. It could be venture capital. It could be crypto. Who knows? But the point is, they need to manage their obligations to other managers, but also potentially to whoever they are. If it's an endowment, they're funding the operating budget for the school. Um, it's if if it's a foundation, they have the same sort of you know mandate as well. Um, and so they, there's a lot of like moving pieces on the LP side. Um, but the other reason why capital calls have historically been you know the model. For how you actually um, you know, run a fund like ours, a closed ended fund, is it actually is a model um, where you can juice IRR. And this doesn't really happen for um, the venture capital firms because really what people care about at the end of the day from a venture firm perspective is what's your DPI, which is dollars distributed per invested dollar. Um, and, and that's all net of fees. And it's just like dollar per dollar. How much did you get back over what time horizon? It's usually 10 years. But when you're a private equity firm and you're benchmarking to, let's say, the the equity markets of like six, seven, eight percent, you've got a hurdle of six to seven to eight percent. And that's you only get, you know, performance, performance fees on top of that hurdle. And so if you're able to say over the course of two and a half, three years, I'm only going to call capital when I make one of my five to six investments for this fund. And we're, we're talking like, you know, buyout private equity firms that actually you know, can add a percent or two to what your total IRR is for the fund, just because you don't actually start calling the internal rate of return on that capital until you call it. So that, that's kind of the other reason why capital calls have been a construct of the fund structure. But once again, for venture, it, it's not really you know, the main driver of
0: success. Venture, Like a venture land, crypto venture landscape question for you guys. I don't know how much you can share here, but like, in my mind, there's like a group of tier one crypto venture firms like electric and paradigm and Polychain and uh, throw framework in there and parify and like uh thanks I'm, kind I'm, of you you know <laughs> I'm, I'm sure i'm i'm sure i'm leaving out some but like you know that there's like a tier one group of crypto venture firms that's in like my mind um but in like when you actually look at the returns of these firms are they like drastically different yes yes we
2: can't talk about our returns, but yes.
0: Okay, well, framework. Okay, then take framework out of it. But like, when you c- compare those firms, like how, like, and what, like how, how different are they?
2: Very different. Like, there's yeah. people who've hit grand slam home runs, and there's people who are kind of like, you know, point like 0.5x to 1x. Mm. Like the dispersion mm. is is massive. Some of it is what your thesis is. Some of it is what you've invested in. Um A lot of it is frankly timing and like that doesn't sound like the most fair thing in the world, but like if to Michael's point, if you miss a cycle, if you don't have capital to buy at the bottom, you're going to show up to LPs with a bunch of illiquid stuff, you know, in terms of, you know, private startup equity that doesn't necessarily have markups or product market fit. And oftentimes that's what determines the survival of a lot of firms.
3: I would also say every single one of those firms, I think every single one of those firms that you just listed was started in essentially the last three to three and a half years. So historically, from a venture capital perspective, we're like in the first to second fund cycle for each one of those firms. Right now, like you can't even really say like, what are the returns? You can have like initial marks and maybe some of them have initial distributions. But the the way that this works over the next five to 10 years is you're actually going to have the the stratosphere separate and figure out who's really good and who's good and who's not good and and that will be sort of the longevity, which is based around the strategy, but most importantly, it's based around the people and right now the the biggest indication of success is like who are the gps who are the ones that are calling the shots, who are the ones that are you know, making the investments and and the younger people at the firms too who are you know making investments and rising the ranks and like what's your bench look like? And what's what? What is the next crop of people who are who are up and coming GPS? And the the reason why you think of those firms as being successful firms is is largely because of probably the personalities or just like that's the right. public presence yeah, that's of exactly those right. people.
0: Yeah.
3: But that is not an indication of them being long term
0: successful venture investors. And, and I think cool. it'll take five years five yeah. more years i guess really the only venture firms that have like a track record are the ones who started in like 2013 for like the panteras blockchain capital like there were very but even them few, dude i mean look yeah. how many exit how no, many Pan, like successful no, kicking... well pantera has been around for a long time
3: pantera started with a blockchain or sorry a bitcoin only fund in 2013 their first venture for fund i think was like three years ago
0: oh yeah i guess there really aren't many firms the the other
2: the other thing is like so our our first fund was was 15 million we only had one outside lp at that time Uh, multi-coin i think their first venture fund was 17. like like you can put numbers up on on that type of capital because like a you're riding a wave b you have a very small fund size but as you grow your fund size it gets harder to do that and you know it's it's a function of like how the industry is evolving it and what's investable but also like how big your fund size is. And so I think what you're going to see to like, you know, to, to the point of like Tiger and them like raising less, like Han Ventures has one and a half billion, you know, Andreessen has four and a half, you know, Paradigm has two and a half. Like they're going to really need to put up numbers or else it's going to be a little bit different of a conversation the next time that they go to market. And I think that's going to be where the rubber meets the road in a lot of this stuff in terms of like determining who's good. and 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 maybe the answer is like the most you can put to work is like, four hundred or five hundred million. Like that's as much as we felt comfortable raising and being able to really succeed with it.
3: But all, but also keep in mind here, like this is a this is a byproduct of the size of the rounds and the valuations that people are raising at. So like when we started in twenty nineteen, we're talking about seed deals that were getting done at like sub ten million dollar or like yeah. you know, seed series A that are getting done at thirty to forty. You know, like and uh we weren't really able to participate Because of the size of it in the Uniswap Series A or the Compound Series A. But the people that were, were Andreessen because they had 350 million. And so you you kind of think about it in terms of like your fund size gets you access into whatever deals are happening at that point in time. But if you've got one and a half billion or four and a half billion, you know, what are the deals that you're able to get into now that you wouldn't be able to get into now? But think about that with the context of you have to get to your ownership percentage for you to have any hope of returning any sort of multiple on this fund. And so I, I think it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, what happens to the fund sizes, because that'll dictate a lot of what, you know, the LP landscape
2: is, but also just like what's available from new investment perspective. Well, like we, One, we have really good evidence, uh, both from Paradigm and the Andreessen funds, that like you can kill it. I think Paradigm was 300 as well. Like yeah. you can kill it with that fund size. Like we don't have a lot of evidence that over a billion – like, you can really put numbers up. And I think that's I, what LPs are looking for. Sometimes, and if, if you guys can't, uh, this is
1: tricky to comment on, that's fine. But every once in a while, I'll see this kind of like, it's like a party round or something where it's like a huge raise with a bunch of big names. And I always look at that. I'm like, I just don't think that makes any sense because the valuation is way off. But, like, everyone is is in it. Can you, as much as you guys can, like, is that like kind of a known thing or like a dynamic that you just have to be in this round, or it's like helpful from a VC brand perspective to be in those sorts of rounds? It is 100% a dynamic that we,
3: A, rarely participate in, uh, if ever, and B, highly advise any of our portfolio companies or potential portfolio companies away from that strategy. Because ultimately what happens is if you don't have a lead taking half to two thirds of a round, you have a tragedy of the commons type situation where it's sort of like, hey, is this your investment? Is, is Do we have to do work or, or are you doing like who's the one who's doing the work after the investment's done to actually make sure that this investment and this company and this protocol is going to be successful? And we've seen it time and time again where it's just
2: like who's on first? And and like why you do these party rounds is not for the financial return. Uh, most of the time, it's so that you have a logo that you can put on your website and you can use that logo on your website to get on CNBC or, you know, introductions to LPs or, or hang out like, with Tom Brady or hang out with TB. The two data points, and
3: um, this actually doesn't come from us. It comes from a few of our LPs who've been in the venture investing industry for the last, you know, couple of decades is the two barometers of success uh, for a venture firm over the long horizon are fund size and fund size consistently. So, you know, like benchmark raises 400 to 450, every single fund cycle. So that's number one. And number two, what's the average ownership percentage for each of the investments that they're making. And those are kind of the two North stars that we think about, which is like, what's the most optimal fund size for this next funding landscape this next two years.
1: Um, and then, you know, we're just maniacally focused on every investment being high ownership. I've got one more question. I, I, then I want, I want to move on to uh, talk about ordinals because I think that would be a fun thing fun to get your guys' perspectives on. But what is the um, what is the one thing, if you're a founder, what's like the one most important question you should be asking your VC? Or what's like the thing that founders should be asking that you feel like they rarely do when
2: they're raising? Probably fund structure. Um, a lot of people got burned because they had hedge funds investing in these like early token rounds and like, yeah, we're going to hold it. And then it's like a totally different story once shit hits the once fan. You need to, yeah. yeah. And, and like, who's the partner you're working with? Like you get Michael or I at framework or, or like both of us in a lot of cases. Um, but a lot of it is kind of like the, the like franchisee model where like the main partner wins the deal. And then it's like some junior guy who takes over that's not really what you want either.
3: And and granted we have people who are more junior on the team that are stepping up now to to own deals, but historically it has been, you know, either us or someone that, you know, is is like soup to nuts, the person who did the deal. Um, and that that I think is a really important component. The second or the other component that I would say um, frankly is just like what proof points of success do you guys have post investment? So like, you know, the way that we like to work is You know, as soon as we make an investment, all right, let's set up a regular, you know, recurring thing. Is it biweekly, monthly, every you know five, six weeks? Doesn't really matter. But like that's sort of like office hours with us, and that you know, if there's nothing to talk about, great, cancel it. We don't need to talk about anything. If you want to talk recruiting, you know, next fundraise, product strategy, whatever it is, like let's sit in a room and discuss everything. And I think that that surprisingly, that model doesn't seem to traverse across funds. And you kind of like have people showing up to board meetings every three months being like, okay, great. What are you guys doing this year? Or like, what's your biggest goals? And like, what are the KPIs that you want to hit by the end of the year? It's like, we've had three meetings in between now and then. And like, we're totally, you know, engrossed in what the
2: product is and and who you're selling it to. Every day on Telegram, we talk to people just like, that's our
0: job. I don't understand the board meeting thing. There was Sorry. a and andreessen popularized the model of um like they they built a lot of the functionality in-house so like they built like in-house sales experts they built in-house marketing experts in-house recruiting experts and like they I think a lot of funds do that now and they were the ones to popularize that what is the what is the like crypto model of like who are the experts that you need to bring in-house I'm sure there's obviously the sales and the marketing and the hiring and stuff like that. But are they, like, do you have governance people who like when you invest in a protocol, you, you know, the protocol can talk to your governance team, like data team, like what, what is, is there an equivalent there? So, so uh, I think um, in crypto, it's a lot
2: different because nobody really has the expertise to be like super helpful for these startups. And like where are these like operational teams that you can like parachute into companies really work, in my opinion, are, are like private equity companies. Okay. You need to turn like a plastics manufacturer around. Let's hire a plastics team that ran an old factory and we'll put them in. Like there's a playbook. Okay. Great. With like startups and especially very esoteric startups, most of the people that we talk to want playbooks. Like wh- have you guys seen this before? What was that like? They want help hiring. You need a deep network in crypto to know who's actually good. Like you certainly don't want to hire a bunch of web two people and, and throw them in a company. And then the last thing is just like founder therapy and you don't want someone junior doing that or you don't want someone who doesn't you know have real skin in the game doing that because a lot of it right now is like all right like do you have all your fingers and toes like how do we make you survive for another two years like okay yep you don't have any product market fit let's pivot the company like you can't really give that advice unless you're just like a crypto lifer like there really is not that many people that can actually do that job and I don't think hiring a big platform team is is really helpful. The other thing that I would
3: say is there there are a lot of technical services that really help bootstrap growth and engagement. So like running nodes and like being initial validator. Um, you know if you have the capabilities. So like, Framework has this concept um, internally called Framework Labs, and we've got a number of people at at Framework Labs that focus on running infrastructure. And sometimes it means you know we're testing out new trading models that. Um, you know some one of our portfolio companies building, uh, or maybe it means like we want to be in the initial validator set of like the test net for um you know the the protocol that's launching and we want to give feedback like that type of stuff really really helps like we're one of the largest chain link node operators we're one of the largest graph node operators um to this day and and so I think that is a differentiation that most like traditional venture firms don't have. I'd say crypto natives kind of get that, but it doesn't scale to every investment.
1: It doesn't scale to every protocol, um, but it is an added benefit for a lot. With the caveat that Blockworks isn't obviously a, a protocol, I, the founder therapy thing resonated uh, definitely. And then also, like people told this to Jason and I in the beginning of Blockworks, and we didn't listen. And I really wish we had bring on an HR recruiting person like way earlier. Would have yep. saved yep so much time
0: three uh, three years earlier yeah you want
2: like with the platform stuff like you kind of want all those people in house yeah Yeah. like you don't want you know oh we're going to send over our marketing guy and he comes down and sits with you and he's like all right so what are you guys doing it's like where do we where do you even start at that point like you have to have those people in house i i'm kind of bearish on like the platform model we're going to build like this talent agency and farm everyone out it just doesn't really work also, it's it's feasible when you can make three percent off of four yeah, and a half billion every year. And LPs love it because it's like you know, like LPs like to know that everything is being taken care of. A lot of situations like that just you can't make that happen. But like if you're like, yep, if they need help with marketing, we got this person. We got this person for HR. We got that person for compliance. But like it doesn't actually help that much. One other one actually that could be, I have a I have a buddy who works for a
1: private equity fund, and uh, they use this thing. It's it's kind of cheesy. It's I forget, it's entrepreneur something, but it's basically a basic business planning, goal setting sort of framework for companies. And uh, I say that because BlockWorks is retooling ours internally, Um, just about like how you set goals, how those goals like all kind of roll up into each other and like a good reporting structure is again, not the kind of thing that you might think of when you're an entrepreneur, like in the trenches, trying to like drag in revenue or like improve your metrics. But it's a super important thing as you get, Slightly larger totally,
3: but it, like it, on the more kind of soft skills side of things, so like the the platform team that we have and and we do have you know someone on our team who who like runs platform, which is maintaining relationships with audit firms, maintaining relationships with recruiting firms, maintaining relationships with any sort of firm that like any of our portfolio companies could use. But one of the things that we found, at least, is like if you provide someone with a framework for how to like run their company, as soon as they take an investment from framework ventures, it's sort of like Hit, do it our way, and like our our way is the only way. It's it, it you can't do that. It's sort of like it takes time where you're sitting with a team every other week or every month, and you're like, what's going on? Oh, okay, that's interesting. Let's talk about it. Like that type of interaction, I think, is like vastly
1: more important. Yeah. Have you seen that, uh, That it's like kind of a joke, but that
2: OKRs were a psyop from Google to fuck up everyone else's uh, planning <laughs> process? <laughs> Mo- most, of, most of that stuff are like medium articles that you can read and be like, got it, OKRs, yeah. not that difficult to implement. You don't Do need some... like a Six Sigma guru coming into your company and being like, we're going to whip this thing into shape. That doesn't doesn't help. No. Entrepreneurs need to figure it out themselves. Yeah, you're right. Um,
1: guys, I do wanna I do wanna talk about Bitcoin Ordinals because I actually it's kind of funny, but I also think it's frankly kind of interesting. So just to like set the scene, so Bitcoin Ordinals uh, it's a pro- it's an NFT project uh, that is on Bitcoin by this guy Casey Wardemore. Um, basically, the the TLDR is that there was uh, a big upgrade to Bitcoin that was made a little while ago called Taproot. And it relaxed some of the limitations around a very specific type of, type of data called witness data. Uh, and it basically, what this what this guy Casey figured out was that you could actually, within the witness data part of each Bitcoin block, you could actually make NFTs based on how sats are configured. It's a very clever, pretty elegant construction, actually. So you can kind of think of it like there was a guy, uh, Dennis porto or something that did a really good write-up of this and we'll link it in the show notes but if you almost think about it from the concept of like hey i bought a bunch of coinbase stock over the course of like a year and then i sell one it's almost like a weird accounting thing do you do first in first out or last in first out but it's the arrangement of those different pieces and that's what kind of the nft is in terms of how the stats are arranged it's just it's a cool kind of construction the the output of this though is that that data is posted to the Bitcoin blockchain in a heavily subsidized way. It's like 10 times cheaper to post that NFT data than other types of data. And it reignited this big debate that had gone on in in Bitcoin a long time ago, starting back in, I think, 2010 or 2013 with, I think there was a project called DNS Domains, where people wanted to store domain data on the Bitcoin blockchain. And it kind of gave rise to these two camps of, is Bitcoin... uh, a general data storage type type platform or is it, should it only be used for financial transactions? And it apparently this debate never really got solved, but there was kind of like a uh, uneasy compromise, uh, which is this thing called OP. I'm, I'm blanking on that, but there's a basically a function where it limits the amount of non-financial data that you can post to a Bitcoin block. And it's prunable, which means that not all the nodes need to download it. So it was kind of this like compromise and, Uh, Casey's project, Ordinals, circumvents that. So it's kind of mixed. The the reaction on Twitter has been sort of negative by some of the more Bitcoin – fundamentalists you might say uh like
0: adam back who's a you know fundamentalist away from fundamentalists. whatever whatever religious the religion. maxis yeah Meanwhile, I, I think, I heard, mike i heard you talking about this and vance is looking at his second screen loading up on these ordinals right now so <laughs> yeah loading up yeah it's kind of cool uh i think it's kind of cool
1: yeah and uh basically adam suggested hey maybe the miners can should censor the crap out of these to, you know, disincentivize this sort of data from from getting posted, and obviously it's got an enormous amount of pushback uh, on Twitter. But I, I'd be curious what what
2: both of your guys' takes on this is. I don't I don't know if either of us are like deep enough in, in Bitcoin land to like really make a judgment call here. I was actually like looking at like if Nick Carter or Jack Muller should put out a statement yet. Doesn't look like anything has has been put out, but. I, w- I would buy one of these. Like I see, like there's Bitcoin rocks, uh, and like I think that's interesting. I kind of want to own a piece of history whenever it's possible. So I'm. But I, like, can can you buy it? Yeah. I don't, I don't think there's like. I mean, you can buy. Uh, you,
3: but you're like posting the NFT to the to the blockchain is what ha- is my understanding of it.
2: However, I can get it. I want to get it. That's my thought process. <laughs> but like, I don't know. I don't know why these people are so angry about everything. Like, like they're making cool stuff and
0: you're just like this domain. That, pissed is, off of that is the response that Vance gives when the market is up forty <laughs> percent yeah. I don't know why everyone's so angry about everything. Why can't we all just get along? No, but I think it does bring up, I mean, some so Mike, you you you've been following this closer than I have, but it sounds like the there's a core group of Bitcoiners who are like, hey, this shouldn't clog up the Bitcoin blockchain. The we shouldn't clog up Bitcoin with like these pictures and these NFTs and things like that. But then if you if you if you don't clog it, With these pictures, what you're essentially doing is you're censoring some part of the Bitcoin blockchain, which is very against another one of their arguments. Do I I understand it correctly there? So here's the
1: debate that I actually think is kind of interesting, which is so I'm like pretty deep. This season of of the interview part of Bell Curve is like app chains and specifically like app dedicated block space. Right. So like forget the chain construction or whatever. But let's say you want to have a block space that's dedicated to one specific application but you also want it to be open and permissionless. That's actually weirdly contradictory because like, let's say you start a chain and it's like, hey, we're an AMM or a DEX, but it's permissionless. So you get contributors that want to build stuff that isn't AMM or dex on the chain. How do you keep those applications off of your chain? It, it's, it's weird. And I actually think that's what Bitcoin is kind of going through here because they are the original app chain. It's the money app chain and a part of that community has been like we don't want other stuff on this chain we want to save this block space for financial related transactions and how do you actually enforce and do that permissioning around app
2: specific block space i think that's that's at least where my mind went i'm not is that a we've seen a few chains like design themselves so specifically that like like for instance like immutable x like you can't transfer uh erc 20s like you can't do anything it's basically only for like nft swaps And that's kind of like what the chain is for. It's not like a general permissionless L1 as you might imagine it, but like they're very specific in their use case. But I don't know. Like it kind of seems like counterintuitive or, you know, counterproductive to be permissionless, but also censor the apps that you want on the chain. And frankly, this is generating more fees for Bitcoin than Bitcoin's generated in a long time. So I guess it would be kind of tragic to see Bitcoin turn into Arweave, but I don't know what the other sustainable economic model it has is. My general rate of this, especially the pushback, is
3: there's someone trying to do something and then everybody else is like throwing up on it. Uh, there needs to be sort of a, a central rallying point as to like what the future of Bitcoin is. And it's, it's kind of like what we've been talking about over the last couple of months with like what is Bitcoin versus every other you know, asset and, and blockchain that's out there. Like what you're talking about, Mike, is an application specific set of block space but that's like defined and also agreed upon as to what that app is doing and what this block space is for. When you have like everybody fighting over this space, it's like literally fighting over land or like real estate, you know, it's like, no, this is mine. And then everybody else is like, no, 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 this is not mine. And then like not in, by, not in my backyard starts to take over. And and so I think, you know, we're, there just has to be a central rallying point. Like is Bitcoin for transferring value, digital gold, is it for uh, or, or payments or digital gold or is it for you know applications that could be built on top of it like ordinals? Um, I, I think this one of my predictions from 2022 leading in 2023 was that there would start to be a conversation around what the start what, what the future of Bitcoin actually is. And I think at least this is the
2: start of the process of people having more of a conversation about it. The the one unique take that I have on Bitcoin is that the mining landscape is going to be really interesting over the next couple of years. So Core Scientific, the largest... Uh, US uh the largest North American miner of any bitcoin in bankruptcy currently Argo looks like it's going to go into bankruptcy they got some sort of emergency loan facility but it doesn't look like they're going to be kept along for for too for a lot for too long Greenhill going into bankruptcy as well like you have most of the bitcoins that are produced in North America in some sort of estate conserv- conservatorship that is willing to there's trying to get out of that and Like you're probably going to have someone roll up all of these different mining operations that went bankrupt and have a lot of power over where crypto and and Bitcoin goes. And I don't think it's going to be a fundamentalist. It's going to be like Apollo who like doesn't give a fuck about ordinals or, you know, Luke Dash Jr. or like, you know, taproot. They're just trying to make money and they're trying to make it economically viable. So it's going to be interesting to see. I also you know there was a there was a metaphor because they the the they everyone admitted very quickly you
1: they can't do anything about this even though there are a lot of people that were unhappy there's nothing that can be done and someone someone made an analogy I actually think it might have been rune Christensen on a podcast like years ago, but he made this analogy when you're shipping software it's like move fast and break things because you can iterate it really quickly and ship you know, codes and fixes very quickly. But if you're shipping hardware, you don't have that option. You have to be very, very careful because the expense of like a product recall is really intense. And uh, shipping blockchain code is very similar, right? Because it's unless you're if you're truly decentralized, you can't, uh, you know, take that back. So this was kind of an interesting example of that dynamic also coming back.
2: We've looked at like a lot of these like bankrupt mining businesses and then like, man, at the right price, can we get there? Like, is this interesting? Like, do we want to get into, like, Bitcoin mining? And the reality is it's so expensive. It's hardware intensive. Like, you're basically beholden to the halving schedule, which says next year you're going to have half the revenue you had this year. So you better have that price double. It's just a really tough business, you know, and, and the people who are still alive are only the best run miners. It's pretty wild. I don't know that much
1: about... uh gold miners or frankly, like data, like cloud, cloud storage business. But I mean, those are, I, I, you know, those are similar business. They just seemed like it'd be really tough. Um, And why would you really want to compete on like, it just sucks to be in a business where your competitive edge is like, how many pennies can you save, you know, on your margin? That's just not a fun environment to work in. I mean, that's, that's infrastructure for you.
3: Like everything, water, you know, electricity, everything. It's like, how fine of a margin can you eke out a
2: profit? And it's like, you look at the investor decks of like, you know, when these things went bankrupt or their first day bankruptcy presentations, and it's like schematics of the plants or like the warehouses that they have these like miners in, in North Carolina. And they're like, yeah, we're thinking about adding like another wing to like add more miners. It's just like, wow. I'm just going to buy ETH and stake it and get the yield from that. And, like, I guess if we want more, we're just going to, like, you know, lever that up. But, like, you know, building more mining facilities, not what Michael or I really want to do with our time.
0: I think it's – I have a buddy who's um, VP of strategy or head of strategy or head of ops or something like that at Grid. If you guys know, know Grid. Yep. Or- so operationally intense so it, i have so much respect for them honestly like it is so it is he's literally like you know hard hat building these at these sites building like you know construction super complex like excel <laughs> calculations like trying to figure out the the debt facilities as well like hundreds of millions of dollar like debt lines and it is uh have a lot of respect for folks building on the bitcoin miner side of things it's a very complex operation I never have ETH to. People web- are just
2: swapping in curve pools and, and staking it. Like, yeah. At some yeah. point, one of these businesses is just like too hard relative to the other to to just like be kept alive. It, you know. I. Like, just, how much is your electricity bill on staking your ETH? Like a few bucks a month. It's nothing. I just I think any business where you have to wear a hard hat in a
1: professional capacity is not a business that I want to be involved. In. <laughs> It's tough for me. Guy? I'm not i I'm not a
0: hard hat guy. <laughs> <laughs> lunch, lunch, lunch fail guy. Uh, um. <laughs> Mike doesn't even go outside when it's raining. So yeah. It's yeah. So no.
1: Let's uh, let's close on a fun. Uh, or maybe it's a fun one. I don't know, Did you guys just see? Uh, Charlie Munger wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, which is the United
2: States should ban crypto. Did anyone see this op-ed? Honestly, the, like. Charlie Munger is just like kind of a clown in my opinion. Like they made a lot of their money backing companies like Coca-Cola, fueling things like the obesity epidemic in the U.S. Like I kind of understand the point of like gambling bad, but you guys have been selling trash to U.S. consumers for decades and and I don't see any repercussions that you've had. So I don't really pay attention to them.
3: The other uh, thing that came out this morning and I'm, I'm, you know, don't know whether or not it's going to go through. Probably not. But um, Nikki Haley came out with a cognitive test requirement for uh, Congress people or or people in politics that are over a certain age. Um, obviously, we can't do that for private business. But uh, interesting dichotomy. Interesting dichotomy of the two uh, uh, perspectives happening within a day of each other. So, Nikki Haley. So that's
0: obviously that's that's obviously her taking a massive jab at Biden, but i don't think it's the that's a queen move (laughs) that's yeah i love that she's cool i don't that's awesome (laughs) i I think it's pretty funny i think it's i mean politicians are like like too old
2: on that note we've only got like 18 months of of the current administration left it's pretty wild you know who actually when everyone was bullish on gary gensler (laughs) Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> this guy taught a blockchain class at MIT. Boston oh yeah, we're Polish. good. Don't worry. It's like no. Listen, you're listen, about to get I'm,
2: smoked
3: I'm I'm saying. Well, okay. So this is my like black swan perspective. I I still think we haven't heard the last of him in 2023. No, for sure not.
2: For sure not. He's, well, the year just started. Be... Yeah, I've, well, I'm true. just <laughs> <laughs> there's a
3: there's a lot of there's a lot of hearing of him yep. in 2022.
2: <laughs>
0: I'm just fucking with you. I agree with that. I agree. Yeah.
2: But, you know, it, it's possible we get, like, think about the bullish catalyst in the next two years. As stupid as I think it is, the Bitcoin halving. You know, that that's one. We got a lot of good stuff on the east side, the app side, probably the legislative side. But if we get regime change, good Lord, in a good direction. If DeSantis is, is there, if Nikki Haley's there, even if Gavin Newsom's there. Gavin Newsom is a crypto guy. He yeah, he. He uh, blocked that bill that was gonna kill all the yeah. crypto companies in California. Yeah, he's also, i mean, Devin, Devin Newsom is is pro business
3: and yeah. pro innovation and pro nuclear, his, pro nuclear. Pro his per, his perspective is just like, listen, we shouldn't cut opportunities off unless we fully understand it. We should protect people from them if they need protecting, but these are these are enterprising
2: opportunities. Yeah, there's a great video of him explaining to—I think it was the California Senate, the state Senate—of like why nuclear is good and why there would be blackouts if like they didn't have this power plant. And it was just like two ships passing in the night, but, but at least he was out there just, you know, giving him giving them hell. What a, uh, I mean, question for, for everybody. Um, what, what as
3: it currently stands is your base case for who is running, not necessarily who wins, but who is running from the democratic and uh, the Democrat and Republican sides? Oh boy, um, we're we're twelve. We're eleven months out from an election year.
0: Wow, that's I wild. Yeah, I mean Nikki, Nikki Haley, Desantis, um, Nikki Haley,
3: Desantis, Trump are, are the two. Like those are the three Republicans.
0: The that, yeah. On Democrat. yeah. For the Dems, I don't know. Buttigieg, Biden, um <laughs> News, Newsom. Kamala, those are probably yeah. the.
3: I
2: think, yeah. Generally, I'd say Biden is probably going to take the Dem side. I think. I think it's going to be Newsom.
0: Oh, Stacey Abrams could run.
2: I think it's going to be Holden. Newsom Trump, and I think Newsom's going to win.
0: You think it'll be Newsom Trump? <laughs>
2: Look, look! at the guy. He's like he's just like a good-looking guy. He's slick. Like he's, <laughs> look at the guy. Look, look at the him. guy. He's a good guy. <laughs> look at him.
0: So, look, at so him. Like, look at his face.
2: <laughs> Peter Peter Thiel ha- gave this talk recently, which is like there's two ideologies in in America that can scale across the nation and like unite everybody and win the presidency. One is like the Manhattan complex, like the Hillary Clinton complex, the Bill Clinton complex. Like the we're New Yorkers. Like you do what we say, and, and like we're, we're those type of people. The other is like the California ideology of like Gavin Newsom, kind of Kamala Harris, like, you know, like the growth, the technology, that perspective. And then now there's kind of like the Florida ideology of like, you know, like uh, anti woke and anti ESG and all that stuff. So it'll be one of those three ideologies, but Gavin's by far the slickest, in my opinion. Balaji thinks Bitcoin is an ideology. Him talk about this. <laughs> yeah, is he is he, he studying or or how's he doing out there? Here? here are the odds.
0: Here are the odds right now: DeSantis, Biden, Trump, Kamala, Nikki Haley, Gavin Newsom, Michelle Obama, Pete Buttigieg. That's what you the know, That's what the markets have it as. Right
3: we, now. we weren't uh, too far off in our top
2: picks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I, th- I think I think you could see DeSantis fade down the stretch, kind of like Jeb Bush style. But uh, we'll someone see. someone's been listening be to all them. Sleepy Jess. No no. <laughs> I stopped listening to all in. I can't I can't get into it. I don't
1: mm-hmm. know. The well I I yeah, it's the front runner thing, right? The for DeSantis, but
0: right. who knows? I don't know. But good place to wrap.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, boys. Fellows. This is fun one. Good running. Good reel. All right. Later.